Hello, I'm your host, Grayson Brulte. We're recording SAE tomorrow today in person at SAE's Government Industry Meeting in Washington, D.C. I love coming to the show because it brings together my policy and industry friends for important policy conversations. And the next few episodes will bring you into several of the conversations I had with attendees and presenters about the current state of policy, politics, and the autonomous vehicle industry. Kicking off the GI series is Amy Walter, publisher and editor-in-chief the Cook Political Report, and GI's Wednesday lunch keynote. Welcome to the podcast, Amy. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. It's great to have you here. We're in the middle of, of election season. We are. <laughs> you turn on the news, <laughs> finance news, regular news, open the papers. It's politics, politics, politics. And on Monday, we saw President Trump steamrolled in Iowa. He went over 50% in the caucus. If this trend continues of President Trump winning New Hampshire, South Carolina, does he wrap it up by Super Tuesday? Uh, he can wrap it up officially by the middle of March. I mean, he will have reached the percent of delegates where no one could catch him by, I think it's March 19th. So that's a pretty uh, squished timetable there. But look, the race will be essentially over if Nikki Haley fails to beat or come close to Donald Trump. And by close, I don't mean 10 points close. <laughs> I mean like a couple of points close. It's hard to call this a race anymore. It's just basically, as you said, it's, it's, it's basically a sprint now to March when he gets enough delegates to be over uh, the majority of delegate line and the race for 2024 the general election really begins. I've noticed his his victory speech in Iowa. His tone is changing. It's not the the sanctimonious. Every you want to call it the nickname book. He was behaved. Is is that a thing to come? Or are we just going to revert back to the nickname book? It's it's so good that you brought that up because I feel like now we have watched Donald Trump what since 2015. So we we noticed this pattern. I've been noticing this pattern since then, which is he will, now he doesn't have Twitter, but he has his other platforms where he will write something or he'll be at a rally, say something, be on TV, say something, and you say, okay, well, there's undisciplined Trump, there's Trump, as you said, the nickname thing, the retribution, the grievance, off message, kind of rambling, and then all of a sudden he'll go into disciplined Donald Trump mode. Oh, that was a that was a good way to sort of frame the outline of this race. I saw that he at the the Fox town hall was that a week ago. He did a very good job of keeping focused on the issues that really matter to voters. I think at one point Brett Baer asked him, "Hey, um, you know, you keep talking about like I'll be your retribution. Is this just going to be a campaign about retribution? He's like, no, no, no. I'm just going to talk about the economy. That's what people want to talk about. It's not retribution. But we know that it's going to be both of those things. You'll get the disciplined and the undisciplined Trump. I, I think it was Maggie Haberman. The New York Times wrote this phrase about him, which is is just brilliant, which is he's the most undisciplined, disciplined candidate we've ever had. And that I think we can expect to keep going. So we'll have the yin and the yang? Yeah, it is. He, at his core, you know, he kind of, he knows who he is and what his ethos is, his theory of the case is. But he also cannot 
but help himself when he feels like he's been wronged, when he feels like someone has disrespected him, when he feels as if, you know, things are not working out the way they should be, he will go absolutely way off script. Or in his case, it is part of a script, right? That's why it's the disciplined undisciplinedness. It It is all part of what you get. You don't, you, you may get one side of Donald Trump one day and the other side of Donald Trump the next day, but it is all part of the same package. So we've, again, we've been, we've been down this road now for the last eight years. I, it doesn't feel to me that much has changed. Although when I talk to folks who cover him and have been covering him for years, what they'll say is it feels like at his rallies, it's a little, his um, style is a little bit darker. He's, um, you know, there, there was a little more, you know, he's, he's always been, as you said, throwing the insults and the nicknames, but, but his outlook is much darker now than it was, say, when he was first running in 2016 or even when he was running for re-election in 2020. Much more an, a focus on this idea of retribution, persecution, really reliving, relitigating the 2020 election. And that, you know, he kind of, he's always a guy who goes off on tangents and will kind of meander around. And look, the current president goes on tangents and meanders around too. But again, the folks who've been covering him for years say, you know, it just feels even more meandering than it it once did. So if there's anything that's different, they say, about the Donald Trump that we're seeing now versus the one we saw in 2016 and 2020, it's, it's, it's those two things that stand out, at least in his public persona and what he he does at these rallies. Well, President Trump has, has gone darker. If you look at the American consumer, let's remove Wall Street from this equation. Let's just look at Main Street uh, data of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. The consumer's hurting. We saw the recent report that credit card debt now is at an, is at an all-time high, higher above the 2008. So they're hurting. We're in a high interest rate environment. And we saw during uh, President Trump's presidency, uh, Jay Powell was a bully pulp. He just kept going after after pal non nonstop. And there there's reports now and and I don't think that we're gonna have a interest rates in the first half and that Powell's gonna have to get unconventionally political to save the economy. To then does Trump make Powell the big bad man again and starts going at him, I told you folks, does he become another Oh I don't want boogeyman if you want to use that yeah, word. Yeah, sure. That 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 except in this case you know, he can use Joe Biden as really he's the boogeyman, right? Because when Trump was president, he had to be able to deflect the blame of what was happening in the economy off of him and onto, see, it's, I I don't have control over this, right? It's the Fed that's doing these things. If it were up to me, I wouldn't do this. And remember, we're supposed to have a wall between (laughs) the executive and the Fed. He, uh, one of the many norms that he broke was being pretty clear about his opinions about what the Fed was doing and what he would like the Fed to do. So in this case, though, his his argument on the economy is a pretty simple one. And it is also, at least voters at this point, believe it to be the case that the economy was better when I was president than when Biden, with Biden now as president. And you can trust me more than you can trust that guy to get it better again. And again, you look at the polling, it's double digit 
difference between how people feel about Trump handling the economy and and Biden positively for for Trump. Do you think that the policies of Trump were more helpful or did they hurt you more? This was a Wall Street Journal poll that uh, came out probably two or three weeks ago. Fifty percent of voters say his policies were more helpful than hurtful. They're not saying that about Biden now. So the the path to Trump's victory, you're absolutely right, it goes through the economy. And he already has a public that feels pessimistic about the state of the economy and already thinks that Joe Biden isn't doing a particularly good job with it. So if it were just about the economy and who could fix the economy, Donald Trump would win this election. But it's not just going to be about that. And that, and that's what makes this a really unusual election. Because <laughs> um, we, we haven't had an ex-president face off against a current president since 1892. And if any listeners were around in 1892, I'd love to hear their, <laughs> their insights from what that election was like. But um, so we, we don't, we think we know what it's going to look like because we've seen them run before, but we've, we, we normally have an election that is about, do you want to go give this person four more years or do we want to give up somebody else a, a shot? Now we're saying, we're asking voters in this upcoming election, you want four more years of Biden or do you want four more years of Trump? And that's a very different calculation. Yeah, and if you look at the Republican base, they got a fighter, and there's a there's a percentage Absolutely. of that base that that's likes what a they, fighter. That's what they want. Absolutely. When Senator Romney, when he was termed Governor Romney, was uh, had the Republican nomination, there was that big thing in, the, in a certain part of the base where he never fought back, where he had those those opportunities. Now the base has a fighter. So we, the economy is, is a very clear defined issue, but then there's immigration. The the border issue is overwhelming. Does that become the hot button issue going into it this? It certainly is right. Listen, right now it is a, a big, big issue. I, still much more so for Republican voters. I think it is, in some cases, their top issue, and then the economy comes to. But the issue of immigration absolutely is moving its way up the priority lists for all voters, not just Republican voters. And it is a clear liability right now for President Biden. I mean, there's no other way to say it. And he's getting hit from all sides, right? He's got Democratic mayors saying, you've got to do something about this. Our cities are becoming overwhelmed. They just saw a report today, you know, uh, from, I can't remember which hospital system, whether it was in New York or Massachusetts. Oh, oh, it was Denver, actually. Denver saying, you know, we, we can't afford, right? Our hospitals are now overburdened. It's not just the what it means to have immigrants here. We think about homelessness and the challenges that come along with having thousands of people bust into your city who have really nowhere to go, but it's having an impact, you know, it ripples through the system. So the healthcare system, um, the housing, et cetera. So it's, it's being felt. And again, some people will see it as a security and safety issue some people say it as a humanitarian issue, but it's also a kind of a competence issue, right, where you say, well, if the president can't handle this, right, it seems pretty, like, I can see that there's a problem. They don't seem to be dealing with it. Well, 
what why what is that about why can't you fix this that 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 reflects on his ability to actually be effective and that comes to your other point this idea of strength it's not just i'm going to fight back against people who have wronged me but it is i'm strong enough to fix problems i'm strong enough to say this is right this is wrong this is going to get fixed we're not going to be dealing with that because we're dealing with this i've toured the roosevelt hotel in new york where a lot of the immigrants are it's sad there's no other way to describe it i've i've toured it and i've seen it my into it's it's a very it's a very sad envir- environment so you look at that and that opens up the debate in california under governor newsom the, the housing affordability issue what we're seeing in California does that further extend to to that issue because there is all these rumors that Governor Newsom wants to do something I'm not going to make an opinion one way or another but there's rumors and it's been well speculated does that become an Achilles heel because if you spend time in Los Angeles it's it's not as safe as it once used to be yeah the issue of of housing is one that has as you know it is so complicated because you're coming at it from so many different angles about what what makes housing so unaffordable in a state like California, right? They'll argue, well, the, the regulations and the the rules around building new housing have been so prohibitive that we are just we're so we're just too far behind um, when it comes to building new housing and that makes it unaffordable. Then there's also the point you raised earlier about we now have interest rates as an issue, right? So the house that I thought I, you know, I'd saved up for for the last 10 years is getting ready to go. Oh, interest rates aren't 3% anymore on this house. They're now closer to 7 um, Oh, I don't know that I can actually afford to get this house that I had been saving for, right? That's frustrating. And even rent, I mean, when I sit in focus groups and listen to, to voters, if you are a renter, that's all you're thinking about too. Is it's not just I can't afford to buy a house or there aren't enough houses. Um, it's, you know, my my rent keeps going up and my salary isn't keeping up with it. And I, I don't know what we're going to do about that. You know, it's eating so much of my actual paycheck that I don't have anything left over. So all of those things come together to make people feel really anxious and, you know, when we ask people, it's it's so interesting because we ask people this catch-all question, how do you feel about the economy? And what the economy means to me might be very different from what it means to you. Um, Health care can be included in the economy, right? If you're really worried because you have debt from health care um, or you have an aging parent who can't afford to stay in an assisted living situation, that's... Is that a healthcare issue or is that an economy issue? Um, and it, again, it, do you have a house? Yeah, I do, but you know, we're outgrowing it. I really wanted a new house and I can't get one because the interest rates are too high or I don't feel safe in this neighborhood anymore. Is that an economy issue? Is that a safety issue? You know, the, it, it kind of all m- melds together. But I do think that the idea of housing is one that is touching on so many more people, as I said, because of both interest rates going up and also just the inflationary costs of everything else. Your rent now, (laughs) which you maybe even if it didn't go up, you say, well, it's not going up, but everything else is, which makes my rent feel like a scary thing to look at every month. 
It's horrible. I'm, there was uh, Jimmy, I forget his last name, but he ran from Mary New York. The rent's too damn high. Yeah. And, and that, that yeah. resonated with yeah. people. And you're right about rents are going up, but I stopped buying oranges. My house, it's $8. Yeah. I still end up paying $8 for oranges. And, right. and you start to feel these effects. And I'm going to throw another ingredient in the bowl with you that, that I've studied a lot the insurance markets. The cost to insure a house is going through yeah. the roof. The cost yeah. to insure a vehicle with all the new components are going through the roof where mm. it becomes unaffordable. Consumers used to paying, say, for a car, $150 a month for insurance through Geico, and now they're paying $400 because of the battery and the components. And then if you happen to live in a FEMA flood zone or you live somewhere, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you're I know. Yeah. When does that become a national well, issue? Well, sh- right now, I- I'm surprised you you have a state like Florida where I know that uh, this issue came up for Ron DeSantis during the campaign. Not as much as kind of I thought it would be uh, raised, but you know, this is a state that has major insurance problems, right? If you are trying to buy a house, and it, you know, it's one thing. I, th- I think some of us, you know, look at a state like Florida and you go, well, you know, if you're building a house on the beach, that's kind of your own. <laughs> that, that's your own problem, right? Like you know what the risks are uh, if you're building a house on the beach. But think about the flooding that's happened in Orlando. Right. These are people who are living in central Florida or who aren't they're not building a house like right on the surf. They are building further inland. But the flood issues, the hurricanes that are coming further inland and wreaking damage, the winds, as we know, are what cause the most damage. It's impacting everybody there. And, you know, insurers are pulling out of of these states because it's it's literally unaffordable for them um, to, to, to cover uh, these losses. So, you know, if you're in a state like, hey, look, I live in Virginia. Yeah, we, every now and then, sure, I'm sure there are people who live in floodplains, and but just my day-to-day costs for insuring my house are not in the same issue they would be if I lived in California. In, near a fire zone, or I lived in Florida. Um, and so I think right now it still feels like it's one of those issues that is a regional issue. But you're right, if you take the combination of climate and the affordability issue overall, then housing becomes even harder uh, for people to, to be able to to, to feel like they can uh, be part of that class of uh, homeowners. The, the American dream, if you want to use that for a yeah. lot of Americans, is slipping away a lot of it's because of the interest rate environment. And then if you're going to get a mortgage, you have to have a certain level of insurance on that. If you're in, I live in Florida, and, and it's just it's unaffordable for a lot of the individuals who live there. So you're, you're in Virginia. You have Governor Glenn Youngkin. Name was hot and going into 24. Governor focused on the, the state races. But I'm going to fast forward to 28. Does Governor Yunkin go for it, do you think? You know, I I cover politics. I love politics. I could speculate about all of this for the next <laughs> three hours with you. We could be doing this a, a lot. But the one thing I have learned in all my years of of doing this is that our perceptions of even a month from now are probably wrong. <laughs> our assumptions, I shouldn't say perceptions, our assumptions about what the world's going to look like a month, two months, a year, certainly four years, could be wildly inaccurate. And, and it usually is. The big question as we go into a year like 2028 is, 
for the Republican Party beyond whatever the political atmosphere is and whatever else is going on in the world and the country is, what kind of party does the Republican Party want to be? Was Donald Trump just a unique figure that he just can't be replicated? And they're going to try. Ron DeSantis tried to be sort of a mini Donald Trump that didn't really go anywhere. The candidates in swing states who tried to run as kind of mini Donald Trumps, I'm thinking about in Pennsylvania or Arizona with Carrie Lake, um, those candidates fell flat. Herschel Walker in Georgia, right? Um, Those candidates did not succeed. Do Republicans find a way to have a candidate who can be both? Because I do think that the this idea of a Republican Party that is going to be much more in the mold of Donald Trump, regardless of what happens in 24. I think that's likely to be the case going forward. But who is the right candidate? Glenn Youngkin doesn't fit the traditional image of like a Trumpian candidate, right? He's got the country club Republican look. All uh, His whole back background of coming <laughs> from private equity to his style, which is much less combative than it is sort of collaborative, which you have to do in a state with divided government. Even on the issue of abortion, his whole decision to lean in on finding what he saw as common ground, like let's not get into we're going to ban them all or there is no limit. Let's just come to a reasonable agreement on what the parameters of the abortion debate should be. You know, that is a style to me that's kind of a throwback to you. You brought up Mitt Romney that he reminds me of that. So how, how does how does he fare in a world in 2028? That is there are going to be a lot of Kerry Lakes aiming for that. And I, I think you look no further than Nikki Haley, right, who she still represents that wing of the, the party that Glenn Youngkin does, too. Um, muscular on foreign policy, not as isolationist on foreign policy, clearly, as somebody like a, a Donald Trump, coming from a more business-friendly perspective, from sort of traditional corporate perspective. She's, you know, she's still around, so she's still in this fight, but she's not gaining the kind of support that she needs to win it. No, was her very public statements. I believe she put on X and she did a press release that she will not debate in New Hampshire unless President Trump debates. Was that her Achilles heel exposed? No, I think that was actually kind of smart. There's no reason to go and do another debate with Ron DeSantis. I mean, first of all, it gives him a platform rather than saying, look, this guy, he's in, he's at 5% in New Hampshire. He came in a distant second in Iowa after saying he was going to win and after having everything going for him, right? The governor endorsed him. The leader of the evangelical movement in the state endorsed him. He spent hundreds of millions of dollars there on organizing and ads. I'm not going to give this guy a platform. The other thing is if you watched that last debate between the two of them, it was, ugh, it was painful. I mean, it was, um, somebody described it really accurately as, you know, if you've ever watched the World Cup soccer you know, they're the, the top two teams that go on, they play for the championship, and then they have the the relegation game, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, which is the third and fourth player, so who gets to claim third place? And that's what it felt like. Like, they weren't, they were just sniping at each other. It, it felt so petty, 
right? The issues that they were attacking each other on. It just didn't meet the moment. And if I just, I thought that was actually a kind of a, I think it was the right call for her to just say, look, I'm running against Donald Trump. If he wants to come on the stage, great. If not, this is just silly. I think the debates got her to where she is now. Obviously, her success early on in those debates, but I don't think they do much for her going forward. Going forward, I think a lot about this, and I go back to President Trump's first run to the presidency. I'm going to give you a media, a media term, direct-to-consumer. Look at the success of Netflix. It was it was direct-to-consumer. Uh, we're here in D.C., and the most popular show that really put Netflix on the map was, was House of Cards. It was direct-to-consumer. President Trump went direct-to-the-consumer by leveraging Twitter and just hammering away at people. And now you have Tucker Carlson has his own network on X. Why do more political candidates not try that direct to consumer? It's, it's much more cost effective than running these these blitz of ads all over TV. That even I have a my father in law's eighty one. He watches TV for one thing, football. Yeah. That's it, and everything else he's on his iPad, and it's great. He goes great. Look what I found. Okay, well you're going to reach an eighty one year old gentleman who's voted in every election since yeah. he's been eighteen. Yeah. To me, it's a lot more powerful to invest there, but yet it only seems that President Trump was the only one that really understood that model. Yeah, no, it's a good point. And part of the reason he was so successful is that he already was a direct-to-consumer known brand. It's kind of the difference between being able to be Coke or Pepsi and what you have, because you already have the market share and the name ID, and you can do a lot more and be a lot more creative than if I just started my own brand of soda. Right? And nobody knows anything about me. And so, you know, what people I don't think appreciate about Trump is how much he had sort of sown the seeds for his success as a presidential candidate in the 20, 30 years of being in the, the, the cultural zeitgeist, right? And you know, you would talk to both Democrats and Republicans who were running against him in 2016 who would, you know, go to these focus groups and outline, all right, let me show you all the facts. He's bankrupt. This thing is bankrupt. He tried this, this, this. They all went up, right? He's he's a fraud. He's got, you know, Trump University, Trump stakes, Trump this, Trump that. What a disaster. Don't forget Trump vodka, too. And Trump vodka, <laughs> all of these things, right? The The... The UFL, all these things that were just an absolute disaster. And voters would go, well, that's not true. He's, look at him. He's a multimillionaire. I don't know what you're talking about. No one's going to let, no one lends him money in New York. He's considered a joke in New York. Really? Well, I see his name on buildings. Um, I always go back to my son was probably t nine or 10 years old in that first run. And he said, well, of course he's rich. He has his own plane. And it's like, right. I mean, only really, really, really rich people have their own plane with their name on it. And it's big. And it's big. So th this, you could not convince people that he was not successful. Also, because, so they see his name on buildings. They saw The Apprentice. They saw him in, if depending on how old you are, right, <laughs> in movies and reference. Home Alone. And in Home Alone, <laughs> all of it. He was the New York real estate ma magnate, right? That is very, very hard for regular people. Very few people have that. Now, this is why you hear names like Mark Cuban, right? What if he, now, and he doesn't have nearly the reach and, and the like national name recognition that a Donald Trump has. Um, but, you know, he would be somebody that you go, all right, he has 
some name recognition because of Shark Tank. And for people who are into sports, they know the Mavericks. You know, he is somebody you could see see kind of getting into the scene, maybe. I don't know. But for your regular Paul, like a Glenn Youngkin, you still got to go through the, the regular channels. The Cuban's interesting. He sold his majority share to Sheldon Adelson's uh, widow, so he's uh, no longer majority owner of the Mavs. And that's interesting. Which raises the question, are we entering the age of the celebrity president? Right. So some people are I, – I think what we learn every year is one of those things that seems really obvious, but we have to remind ourselves, even people who do this for a living, it's hard to run for president, it looks easy for really smart, successful people to go, well, that guy, I, I could do that. And then you have somebody like Mike Bloomberg, right? Now, that's, you can call him, I don't know if he's a, he's not a celebrity in the same sense that Donald Trump is, but he's a well-known figure, obviously somebody who has a bajillion dollars. And watching him on that debate stage, I don't know if you remember that in 2020, getting eviscerated by Elizabeth Warren was a reminder, again, of this is hard. And so, yeah, you, you will see. We, I think every year we see somebody pop up as a potential candidate or, I mean, Dr. Oz. He didn't run for president. He ran for the Senate. And that didn't go so well. So he thought he had it too, because he transferred all of his assets to his daughter. Mm. And look what happened. Yeah, I mean, you could, you you still have to be believable, authentic. I mean, what I love about elections and campaigns is that you know it does feel like, ugh, does it really matter? People just you know, they vote for a D, they vote for an R. Everybody's so polarized, but. You know, voters can smell the difference between a good candidate and a bad candidate. And, you know, again, Carrie Lake, another example. She's a very well-known in Arizona. She's been on everybody's TV for years and years and years. I think she started with a well of goodwill. And then the more she kind of (laughs) talked and dug herself into this hole of being somebody who was, you know, kind of promoting conspiracy theories and the election was stolen and, you know, voters started to go, well, huh, maybe she's, maybe she's not the same person we saw on TV all those years, but they, they can, they can sniff that stuff out. And so the real deal, you know, is, is hard to, to, to show to the public. So, um, the other big difference I think is, uh, Democratic primary voters are not quite as attracted to those kind of candidates as Republicans are, in part because, look, Democrats like government. They think experience in government is important. They want somebody who's proven themselves being a public servant of some sort, and especially somebody who's had governing experience or elective experience. So Somebody popping in, remember Oprah was considered the one like, Oprah's going to come in and win the nomination. Now, maybe she still could. I'm not saying that it's impossible to believe that. But that kind of candidate, not as appealing as on the Republican side, those candidates who are outsiders, 
not traditional politicians, come from the business world, come from, you know, some other celebrity, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, Arnold, yeah. They have a they have more appeal to Republicans. On the Democratic side, who's next? I mean, who? I mean, obviously, you have Gavin Newsom is, is chomping at the heels, but where where's the the Democratic, let's say, institutional governmental bench with the experience? I don't really see a clear path. A clear path there. There's actually a really deep bench, and I think that's why you have, among many Democrats, real frustration with. Biden, Team Biden, because they say we've we've got a lot of people out here who could be very strong candidates against Donald Trump. You're not the only guy who could beat Donald Trump. And so they would point to Governor Whitmer in Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer. They would point to Jared Polis, the governor of Colorado. Obviously, Gavin Newsom wants to do this. Whether he would get the nomination or not, that's a whole other question. They have a deep bench in the Senate. Some of them ran last time around, you know, the Michael Bennett from Colorado and Kirsten Gillibrand from New York and Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota. I'm not including Warren and Sanders because of their age. So let's go to the (laughs) next generation (laughs) under that. And then you've got the new governors, Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania, super popular. He is absolutely on the short list for 20. 28, there's no doubt about that. Wes Moore from Maryland, the governor of Maryland, incredibly charismatic, definitely going to be on a short list. So the bench is actually really deep. It's just that, you know, you think about this like a, you know, there's there's been the ceiling here and it's Obama, Hillary, now Biden, that have been taking up all of that space and all of the younger folks underneath are like, but what, when's my chance? Now, to be fair, they had a chance in 2020 and they didn't succeed, but this, this could have easily been the year where you saw those candidates come into the consciousness of voters. If Biden had said, you know what, I'm not, I'm not running for re-election. Obviously, vice president would have run as well. But I think you would have had a very robust primary. Is there a lot of unhappiness in the Democratic Party because Biden's wanting to run? Privately, you know, if you go into a room with Democratic sort of elites, we'll call them, every person in there will be grousing about it. Because they think this is somebody who should have, you know, passed the torch. It's at 81 years old. This is just such a big risk. And we didn't need to be in this position, but we are. And we've got to now just make the best of it. But in the same way that if you go into a room with Republican elites, they'll all complain about Donald Trump. So what's interesting to me, the difference between the two parties right now and think going into this election is, you know, still that Republican elite class, donor class, as well as political class does not want Donald Trump. The voters do. So the voters are winning. On the Democratic side, I think both the base voters and the elites would like to see another nominee. It's not that they 
don't like Donald uh, or don't like Joe Biden. They like him, but they want him to move out. But nobody's doing anything about it. You know, at least on the Republican side, the donor class can say, look, we don't like Donald Trump, so we gave all of our money to Ron DeSantis, or we gave all of our money to Nikki Haley, and didn't work. But at least we did something. On the Democratic side, you know, you don't have a senator, a governor that said, hey, nobody else is running, fine, I'm gonna do it. And if you're here complaining to me, as I've heard you complain to me, week after week about Joe Biden, then give me money and let me run this. But the money wouldn't be there because the fear is more that if we challenge him, it will expose more weakness, it will divide the party, and it will hand the election to, to Trump. And so it's better to just privately grouse, but publicly put on a good face and make sure we beat Donald Trump. Where's Joe Manchin fit into all of this? Where does Joe Manchin fit into all of this? Well, for the time being, he still has a very powerful role. He is still vote number 51 for or 50 in some cases for Democrats. So they still need him around to do certain things. Um, does he decide to run as a third party alternative on this no labels ticket. I I just don't, I mean, look, I don't, I don't know him personally. It's not like we text each other, we're not <laughs> friends. Oh, come on. I know, <laughs> but he definitely feels isolated from the Democratic Party. There's no doubt about that. But I think he also understands politically that a third party candidate is just not gonna get. You know, anybody who's done politics <laughs> understands why a third party candidate for president is not going to win. Now you can be upset about that. You can want that to change, but the reality is it's not changing. Certainly not by 2024. So if you run, you will be a spoiler. And the only question is, are you a spoiler that's going to help Trump? Or are you a spoiler that's going to help Biden? In this case, I just think most of those third-party candidates would be more helpful to, to Trump. I mean, this has been a really insightful conversation. We can go I know. On, we've on got a, we, we've, we haven't even touched on, <laughs> haven't again, gone watches. Ukraine, and, energy, right, we've got watches. We've got a lot of stuff. But that's what's um, really exciting about this moment that we're in. I mean, I, I appreciate it. it is anxiety producing living in a time of such dramatic change and tumult where it feels like the ground shifting underneath us all the time, where politics, something that, you know, for me at least, it made sense. There was a certain rhythm to it. It doesn't follow that rhythm anymore. But we're also in a new century. Like, we're literally at a tipping point in not just American history, but we're watching the same things that you and I are talking about are happening all over the world, right? So this is um, a, a, a time where we, if we step back and say, okay, understand where the anxiety is coming from, understand that change is difficult, <laughs> understand that humans do not like 
things changing, right? That's like a, the most human of human conditions. We are in a time of great change. And at, we will come out on the other side and, you know, historians will come back and go, well, this era was known as the blah, blah, blah era, right? But it's hard to feel good about that when you're in the middle of it. Yeah, there's a lot of nervousness. If you look at the election in Taiwan with the new president and China's not too happy about that. My concern is the global economy with semiconductors. There's a lot to look for, and at some point, I'd love to have you back. I think that semiconductors will become a, a presidential issue just because of the impacts on the global economy. Amy, thank you so much for coming on SAE tomorrow today. The conversation's been wonderful. It's been awesome. Thank, thank you. you for really appreciate insight. it. This is really fun. Thank you for listening to SAE tomorrow today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.